0: Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Good morning. Happy Father's Day to dads in the room and I'm really grateful that you are here at church this morning. I am, uh, my name is Jarrett, I'm our student pastor, get to work with our teenagers and uh, the summer is such a busy time. Love the summer but also grateful to get to open the word with you. So uh, if you want to open up to John chapter 4, that's where we'll be today and we're going to cover... So much ground, verses 1 through 30. Uh, So I hope you're ready to kind of move a little bit. I love this passage. It is one of my favorites because it shows us so much about who Jesus is, who we just sang about, the King of Kings, and who John paints as the Lamb of God, the true light and and the living water. Uh, We get to see so much about who Jesus is. But what's remarkable about John chapter 4 is that it takes that Jesus, King of Kings, and brings him down to our soil, brings him down to our level, and even puts him in your face a little bit, a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, So you can think about it this way. Maybe you have a friend or this kind of friend who, when they call you and they say, how are you? You know that with that person, it's not an invitation to small talk. They really want you to spill your soul to them. Even if it's just over a cheeseburger at Five Guys, they want you to spill your soul. So I had this conversation with my roommate the other day, or a former roommate of mine the other day, and I know that's going to be a two-hour-long phone call when it comes. So I've got to mark out the time for my day. Do you have this, friend? Yeah? Uh, Jesus is sort of going to do that with this woman that we're going to meet today, but He does it with such grace and kindness that she actually leaves this interaction very new and changed and very much sent back into her world with a new purpose. So if you're ready to go, can you say, I'm ready? All right, so uh, John chapter 4 is where we'll be, but in John chapter 3, you'll remember that Jesus meets our friend Nicodemus, who uh, is a good leader for us because he asks questions, but not so much for his day. Asking questions is a no-no. So he begins to ask Jesus these questions, and Jesus uses words like, born again and eternal life, and that's a problem for Nicodemus, who says, I'm old and my mom is dead, so how am I supposed to be born again, right? These are weird things. And Jesus is teaching and his uh, disciple making is really starting to make waves. But right now we are hanging under this banner of God so loved the world. And it doesn't say that God so loved just his people, the Jews. It's the world. And uh, John chapter 4 really clues us into the fact that Jesus really meant what he said when he says that I so love the world and everyone in it. Uh, So Nicodemus is hearing all these really really odd things and Jesus is going to say some weird things to this woman in John chapter 4. But uh, he decides and to his disciples to travel north to the Galilee area because he's kind of trying to starting to make some waves in the Judea area. So he's going to pick up and move but he doesn't go around Samaria which is what Jews normally do to avoid the Samaritans because there's some real rivalry going on there. He decides, in fact, the text says he has to go through Samaria. And we're going to see here in a second. So I'm going to pick up in verse uh, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7, and just read a little bit here. So Jesus is in Samaria, and he parks at a well just outside uh, the city of Sakkar, and it's Jacob's well. Very significant spot in the Old Testament, and you'll see that here in a minute. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to her, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So you can see above verse 7. Jesus has to go through Samaria. Why does Jesus have to go through Samaria? Simple, he doesn't. But he chooses to because he has a divine appointment. And it is this point that I want us to see before you really even get into the meat of this text, that our Lord is purposeful and Jesus has a purpose with what's going on here. Jesus is a direct and he is dedicated in this purpose. He is going and he is meant to meet. With this woman. He is meant to bump into her at this well because Jesus is purposeful and nothing can mess up his plan. How do I know this? Uh, Because one of my favorite passages in all scripture, because of what Ephesians 1 says to us, which says this that before the foundation of the world, you have been chosen in him to be holy and blameless. And that for the whole fullness of time, that's a lot of time, right? For the fullness of time, Christ has been the plan for your salvation and for your deliverance. What does that tell me? It tells me that for the, before the fullness of time and before the foundation of the world, Jesus was meant to meet with this woman. And we can say the same thing about us. Jesus meant to know you and Jesus meant to save you. So Jesus is purposeful, right? Right? And if we can radically believe this, if we can radically believe what Ephesians 1 is telling us, that Christ has always been the plan, always been the plan, and if we can believe that, then our perspective, we can zoom out from our perspective of life and gain a heavenly perspective on our life. Why? Because before the foundation of the world, Jesus meant to know you, and Jesus meant to meet you, and Jesus meant to save you and make you His. So if you can gain that heavenly perspective, what can happen is this, that your trust in God can run far deeper than your worry, far deeper than your anxiety, far deeper than your questions. Why? Because before the foundation of the world, Jesus has you on His mind. Isn't that amazing? So this woman is uh, experiencing this and she, does she get it? You know the story? She's, she's spoiler alert, she's not. She's not going to pick up on what Jesus is putting down right here. Uh, so having this kind of trust, you and I can gain a really unique perspective on John chapter 4 because we know that because of the Holy Spirit, we can approach Jesus and say, he is not a stranger to me and I am not a stranger to him he knows me. He knows me. This woman, she doesn't get that yet, but she's about to figure out, she's about to find out really vividly that this man knows her. So if you find out verse 11, the woman says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, because he says, I'm going to give you living water. You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is really deep. You don't even have a bucket." Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? She gets a little, uh, a little feisty with him. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water. Picture that in your head, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So did you catch what just happened here? Jesus offers her this. It's incredible. An internal, eternal spring, a geyser of eternal life of true abundant life that is inside you, given to you by me. And he's not even, he doesn't even hide what it is. It is eternal life. This is what I'm offering, an internal geyser, a spring that just wells up eternally. And then she says back to him, sign me up for that because I would love to have that on tap in my kitchen. And that way I don't have to lug these buckets back and forth. You see that? Give me this water so that I can sometimes find some relief, quench my thirst. She's after relief. Jesus is actually, he's he's after total reconstruction for her. And she's on a totally different level than Jesus is, right? Jesus is offering her this incredible, radical, beautiful gift. And she is after the simple and easy. So this makes me think about uh, church life for a second. Uh, if you grew up in church, you can probably picture your testimony. or think thinking about the way you share your testimony that you, we use words like when I was a kid, when I was a kid, my father taught me the Father's Day. Or when I was uh, years, and we, we use words like faithfulness and consistency and decades. What a gift. What a great, great story to be able to tell, a story of faithfulness. Uh, but for example, it makes me think of church life because when we were in Nicaragua a few months ago, we heard radical stories of like men and women being pulled out of pits of addiction and literal prison cells, and then now are living for the Lord and finding health and finding grace. But that doesn't match up with all of our stories, does it? but that's okay. Here's why. Because grace, no matter how, how long the journey, grace is for the entire journey. Uh, so a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, we saw a baptism in here. Grace does not get you to that tank, and then as you walk back up, you're good. No more grace. You don't need any more grace. That's not how it works, is it? No, grace is for the entire journey. That's why we say, oh, baptism is your first step of obedience with Jesus, not your last at all. So grace is for the entire journey, no matter how long your journey is. And Jesus is going to, uh, he's going to really get into this woman's face a little bit in a graceful way, in a kind way. But here's what Jesus wants. Jesus wants far more for her than the simple and easy and quick conversion experience that ultimately sends her home no different. No different at all. So when I think of our stories, when I think of our testimonies, what we are after is to be able to say this one day after decades of following Jesus, we can look back and say, how has Jesus changed me? How am I different than it was from a year ago? How am I different than I was five years ago? And maybe probably, how am I totally a totally different person than I was ten years ago? Grace for the journey, Grace does not stop at the beginning. Grace is for the entire journey of walking with Jesus. But what this woman wants, what she desires, is the really quick and easy and simple conversion experience. That's what she wants. She wants the kitchen sink w- water when Jesus is. Really, he wants to flood the house from the ground up. Total reconstruction. So we're at totally different levels here. She wants the quick and easy. Jesus wants her heart. So what does Jesus say? If you know the story. But if you don't know the story, you would never guess where Jesus goes after this. Because he wants to do something. He wants to make sure that she does not leave this interaction the same. So what does he say? Verse 16. Go call your husband. Well, we're going to learn from her that that's going to be a little bit of an issue for her, because she does not have just one ex-husband, two, three, four. She has five former husbands, and now she's living with boyfriend, essentially. So when Jesus says, go call your husband, can you imagine what goes on inside of her? Maybe her heartbeat spikes a little bit, starts sweating a little bit, starts thinking, how am I going to maneuver this? And what does she do? She gives him the simplest answer possible, I have no husband. And what does Jesus say? I know, you're right, for you have had five husbands. So I want to ask you this question. Why does Jesus want so much more for you than just the easy, quick, and dry Experience that ultimately leaves you the same and no different. Why does he want more for you than that? Go call your husband and come here, he says. Because it's so much easier to hide your sin in that space. When you don't get anywhere near the deep stuff, when you don't get anywhere near the soul deep, maybe brokenness that you carry in your back pocket, it's so much easier to hide your sin there. And therefore, so much easier to just coasts with Jesus and become like a stagnant pond. So Jesus wants far, far, far more for her than that, and he wants so much more for you than that experience. And he wants you to be able to look back and see that, yeah, over years of faithfulness, this is the way, these are the ways that Jesus has changed me. Jesus is after total reconstruction. So Jesus tells her, go call your husband. And Jesus is not going to allow her. He's not going to allow her to possess this living water that he's talking about until she can see in herself that there are some areas in my life that are off limits to this living water. There's some stuff in my back pocket that I'm not willing to part with. I'm not willing to get rid of either because I'm not willing to part with it or because I've downplayed it so far that I don't even think it's an issue for me. But in reality, she has this uh, deep, 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 dark um, brokenness that she carries. Here's the thing. We don't know her story. We don't know five husbands. Is she immoral? Is she a serial adulteress? Like, we, we don't know. It doesn't tell us that. Has she been widowed five times over? Like this one, she could be well into her senior years of life. We don't know. Here's what I know. Anybody who has had five marriages come and go and is now maybe moving towards number six, they're going to carry some baggage. They're going to carry some pain and possibly, most definitely in this culture, going to carry some shame, no matter what the circumstances are. We don't know those. Jesus knows those circumstances. And yet still, he's going to press in on this. And he says, go call your husband and come here. Go get your brokenness and bring it here. For us, this could literally be, go get your temper and bring it here. Go get your bad habits and bring it here. Or more tenderly, because Jesus is kind, go get your worry. Bring it to me. Go get your anxiety. Bring it to me. Is it going to be difficult? Yeah, but remember what I just offered. What is it? living water, eternal life? What if on the other side of bringing our brokenness to Jesus, we actually find true life? And I feel like that's what stops us in church life today. What stops us from really um, finding the true life and abundant life that Jesus really desires for you, what stops us is the feeling that, man, if I let that bubble up, if I bring that out, if I become vulnerable, that's going to equal death for me. That's gonna equal shame for me. That there's no way I can get over. It's just like, what is church for? Is church for the best people? No. Jesus comes for the sick, right? Jesus comes for the broken. He does not come for the one who is all spiritually well and healthy. Jesus comes for the broken. So he says, go call your husband and come here. Go get your brokenness and bring it because the grace of Jesus is not scared of your deepest brokenness and can be the very thing that liberates you from that deepest brokenness. It does not have to be the reason you push it down and hide it and and try to clean yourself up and take a spiritual shower before you come back running to Jesus. Come to him first. That's the invitation that Jesus gives us. This is what living water that brings eternal life is. So for us, if we are living a life that looks like this, I live for Jesus on Sundays, but then I've got some other areas of my life that I'm not so sure or not willing to part with. I'm not willing to totally surrender to Jesus. I'm going to tuck that away. If we've got something in our life that kind of fits that description, what is going to happen to your view of grace? It's going to be very shallow, very shallow, because we convinced ourselves that there's no way anything can cover or free me from that brokenness that I'm just carrying with me, dragging behind me. No way can anything cover that. And our view of God's grace becomes very shallow. But if you look at the way Jesus is describing this, living water, eternal life, a spring that wells up inside, is that very shallow? No, not at all. It's the opposite of shallow. It is eternally deep. And this is the grace that Jesus is offering to us, to you and I. Not, hey, go clean yourself up so you can come and walk in this ankle-deep, shallow pool. Uh-uh. Jesus' grace is deep. And Jesus' grace is so much deeper than even your deepest brokenness. Praise the Lord for that, Right? So uh, Jesus is going to really press in with this woman. He's going to really make her uncomfortable and even step on her toes a little bit. But what is happening here is this. This is, uh, it's water fountain grace versus old faithful grace. Have you ever seen that geyser? Anybody seen that? I actually haven't. I would love to go someday. Uh, But one, water fountain grace is very neat and tidy and stays in its lane. The other, it's faithful but devastatingly powerful. And to really embrace it is going to equal, it's, it's going to ne- necessitate major life change. That's scary. That's really scary to step into, but the invitation is to life, eternal life, which for me can mean two things. It is life that lasts forever, but it is also the most abundant life now. Like eternal life does not wait for you. And the eternal life does not wait for you to get to glory right? It begins as you step into life with Jesus. So um, the wellspring that Jesus is offering to us is a kind of abundant life. So let's continue this conversation. Jesus says these very weird things, and she finally discovers or picks up on the fact that he's saying something different. This man is saying, he's talking about things that are way beyond my experience, okay? So what does she say in verse uh, 19? Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, and then she's got this question that seems to be out of the blue. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say, Jews, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, no, is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father.'" In spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So, so too much to talk about in those verses. But what what I really want you to see is Jesus' kindness. See Jesus' kindness as He answers her question. Does He want the simple and easy for her? No. He wants far more for that for her than that. So he's going to press, press, press. And he answers her question, and it's not a dodge. It's great, right? It's not a dodge. Jesus doesn't just dismiss her because Jesus' rule of our lives does not smush us down like a tyrant. He raises us. He raises us up with him. You read Hebrews for all about that. Uh, Jesus raises us up. He wants us to take this journey with him side by side. So he does not dodge her question, which is so unbelievably kind for me, but he does it in a very truthful way. He just lays out the truth. Here's the deal between Jews and Samaritans. You worship what you do not know, and we do. Why can Jesus say that? Because he's Jesus. He gets to. He can have the authority for that. He can just lay out the truth. This is the way it is. Salvation is going to come from the Jews. This is how God is going to work for, through salvation histories through these people. But then he kind of gives her some gospel language. The hour is coming. No, it's, it's here. And things are going to be different from now on. Think, like the, the way that you've experienced God is so cookie cutter, is so set in stone. You have to do A, B, C so you can get God. And no longer is that going to be the way things work because God is now spirit, which means God is present. He's manifesting himself to us in brand new ways. Little does she know who's sitting right in front of him. My goodness. So uh, Jesus, he answers her question. He kindly answers her question, and he answers it with a lot of truth. But he doesn't just answer the surface level question. Jesus wants the heart, right? So Jesus answers the heart behind her question. So when I was reading this passage, I've read this passage hundreds of times. I used to think, man, she's dodging Jesus. She's just trying to change the subject, trying to to dodge it with a doctrinal question, which is valid. But I also feel like this, that this is not so much of a dodge as it is her expressing to Jesus a very deep issue that she has with God. A deep question that she might have for the Lord. That before she really dives in with with the Lord, before she really gets serious about this, she's going to want some clarity on this. Can anybody relate to that? Having a question for God? I think we can all really relate to that. Having a question for God. And maybe it's not so much a question that makes us pull back from our faith. Maybe in a really beautiful and like paradoxical way, it's the kind of question that makes you really rely on your faith, even though you would still love to have that answer. It's still a thing. It's still a question in your mind. She's got a deep concern that she has when it comes to thinking about God. And she just wants to see if she can get some clarity. And how kind is Jesus to be so patient with her, to actually give her an answer. But he, how does he answer the heart of her question? Well, he says that God is after this type of worshiper. Did you catch it? Two things. Worshippers who worship in spirit and spirit and truth. So spirit and truth. I overthought this for way too long. This is it. God reveals himself, or God is due and worthy of our worship because of his glorious presence, but also his holy character. If God was present with us, but he wasn't holy, I don't want to worship him. But if God is holy and he's not with us, he's never shown himself or revealed himself to us, how can I know him? How can I worship him? So Jesus in this interaction is, of course, both. He is present with her, but also because of his holy character, he is so amazingly kind. His true self is revealed to her. So God is after worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. And isn't Jesus modeling this for her? I'm with you. I'm present with you in this. However, also, here's the truth. Here's the answer to your question. And when you can combine both of those and say, okay, the Lord is with me here. He's worthy of our worship. But also there is truth that he gives me. And the fact that he is here and the fact that he is holy means that I'm going to adapt myself to become somebody, the kind of person that adapts myself to his revealed truth. So spirit and truth. God wants worshipers who worship in spirit and truth That means we can recognize that because of who God is and because of the fact that he has shown himself to us, I'm going to worship. He has manifested himself to us. I'm going to worship him because he is here and because he is holy. So spirit and truth, it's that simple for me that Jesus answers her question and he actually answers the heart of her question by saying, here I am. Did you catch it in verse Uh, Verse, um, sorry, lost my place. Verse 26, I who speak to you am he. The heart behind her question is, where is God and how can I know him? That's her question. Your question might be, God, why did you allow this? Why didn't you allow this? Or where were you when? Her question is, where is God and how can I know him? Is it this mountain or is it this mountain? And Jesus' answer, it's not about mountains. It's about Spirit and truth. Here's the truth and here I am sitting in front of you. Jesus answers her deepest heart question by the fact that he is sitting with her. His presence answers her deepest heart cry. Where is God? Right in front of her. And she doesn't even know it. Her deepest concern about God is answered in the fact that he's present with her. That's beautiful. So that's the kind of worshiper that God is looking for. So what's helpful for me is when I see that Jesus' holy character, his uh, kindness is seen in his character, and he answers her surface questions. However, he also answers her heart cry. I am right here. I who speak to you am he. And then her response totally changes. Find verse 27. The disciples come back. They marvel that he's talking with the woman because they're Jewish to the core. And no one said, why, or what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man. Those are those words, come and see. A man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then they went out of the town, and we're coming to him. So her, she goes from totally defensive to what? She's free. Notice that she leaves, and then what does she leave behind? Her jars. That's why she went out there in the first place, all alone in the heat of the day. And what does she do? She leaves it behind. She's totally new, totally free, and sent back with a new purpose, and like, like, why would we run back to our old lives after Jesus? She brought it out there, laid it down, and then she left. She went away from there with a brand new uh, purpose, a brand new reason uh, for, for, uh, for living, right? So she runs back to her town. And what's amazing, if you look way down uh, towards the end of the chapter, it says that people believed her testimony. It's amazing. Like whatever her uh, cultural circumstance is in her little village, in her town, whatever it may be, possibly very shameful, they heard her message, saw the difference, and believed. Incredible. And then, and now in even in Samaria, people are coming and, and uh, coming to the message of the gospel. Incredible that God so loved the world in that way. But I love her, uh, almost immediate switch from defensive to free, simply on the basis of of Jesus saying, I who speak to you am he. He, his presence answered her deepest heart cry. So Jesus's word right here is true for us. His revealed word is true for us, but we don't have to stop there God's Holy Spirit, as we talked about Ephesians 1, describes the Holy Spirit as an inheritance given to us that we will one day fully possess and fully know to the praise of his glory. Like one day the Holy Spirit will be fully ours. We will fully possess it. What a wonderful promise to behold. So yeah, we have God's word and it is true, but also The Spirit is given to us now and readily available to change us and to transform us. So God is even with us through His truth and through Spirit. So Jesus' word is true. It reveals His character, but we're not limited to that. We get to know Him personally through the Holy Spirit. And how is that possible? How is it that the Holy Spirit can be so active in us and be given to us in the first place, it's easy. It's because of the cross. Everybody say the cross. One more time. The cross. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we are able to possess the Holy Spirit given to us as an inheritance. So one of my favorite pastors right now has been Tim Keller, who passed away a few weeks ago. And his insight here really helped me understand this passage in a new way. Think about Jesus on the cross. He said many things. Uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. God, Father, why have you forsaken me? But what's another thing he said? Two words, very short. I thirst. Everybody say that with me. I thirst. Jesus says, I thirst on the cross. Of course that's physical thirst, right? Of course that's physical thirst. But Jesus is experiencing much more than that, much more than physical thirst. Jesus is actually experiencing cosmic thirst. How can Jesus, who has offered to this woman living water, water of life, eternal wellspring of eternal life, how can Jesus offer that to her? Because on the cross he said, I thirst. Physical thirst, yes, but also cosmic thirst because for the first time in the fullness of time on the cross, Jesus is severed from his source of joy, the water of life. For the first time, Jesus is cut off from the Father who supplies him with this living water, with this eternal life. And why does Jesus do that? Why does Jesus take for us The devastating heat of God's wrath for this woman's sin and for our sin. Why does Jesus take that devastating heat? So that we could receive the water of life. So that we could be given this eternal life by the Holy Spirit, given by God because of Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. So the question, how much, God so loved the world, how much? That's how much that he would take that kind of heat, God's wrath, so that we could eternally drink the water of life that he's offering to this woman. She doesn't get it at first, but because of who Jesus is, and because of his revealed self to her, she runs away freed and sent because he received this message from Jesus. This is what he's offering to you. He wants so much more than just us to waddle around in an ankle-deep pool of grace. He wants to flood us. He wants to fill us with an overwhelming, abundant, never-ending spring that that continually fills us and continually looks at the brokenness, the table, become vulnerable with, looks at our brokenness and bubbles it up We call it sanctification. Jesus makes us well, and Jesus makes us holy by continually filling us with abundant life. So I want to put this uh, sentence before you, Jesus' work on the cross. It's a long sentence. It says this, that true change begins with looking to the cross of Jesus, who took your sin in full, paid for it in full, so that you could fully share in his total victory over your sin, and therefore live a fully abundant life. True change begins with looking to the cross and seeing and realizing this is what it costs Jesus to be able to offer me living water, eternal life. It costs my sin. And the beautiful, beautiful thing about this passage is that Jesus says to her, go call your husband. And Jesus says to us, go grab your sin, bring it to me. I know. Jesus knows, Jesus knows, Jesus knows. How does he know? Because he paid for it on the cross. That's how. Because he paid for it. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thanks for this reality that we get to live in. This is not a make believe story. This is not just a good story, Lord. This is your true self, your kind character and your holiness put on display for this woman. But Lord, thank you that you do not just stomp us down. Lord, you, you invite us to interact with you. You invite us to come to you with our brokenness, with our deepest heart cries, with our concerns. You invite us to into your presence, Lord. What an amazing reality. And to sit in front of you, And say, Lord, because of you, I can be different. I can be changed. Lord, thank you for the cross and taking our sin, all of it. And thank you, Lord, that that is sufficient to cover us. Your grace is sufficient to cover even our deepest brokenness, even our deepest sin. Lord, you know, and you still cover us and you still love us. Lord, what a gift. So Lord, help us to worship with spirit and truth based on that reality that you and your grace are sufficient to cover all of our sin and to give us abundant living water, life. Lord, we love you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.